Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I think you can't ultimately defeat racism so long as you adhere to and reify the categories that it imposes. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I am Jane Koston, senior politics reporter at Vox. And today my guest is Thomas Chatterton Williams, author and contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine and contributor at Harper's Magazine. Thank you so much for joining me, Thomas. Thanks for having me. So I think that this is already going to be a different conversation for me and perhaps a different one for you as someone who has been talking a lot about race and racism. I am mixed race. Uh, My father is black and my mother is white, and as are you, which in our generation, I'm 33, and I believe you are 38, 39? Unfortunately, 39, yeah. That was, when I was growing up, relatively uncommon. And now it is becoming increasingly common, which is great and cool. But I actually wanted to talk about that because I think that that can be an interesting entrance into how the current conversation about race and racism is posited and how it's projected outwards. So I wanted to start out, um, and I'll talk a little bit about my parents, but I know that this is an unusual question for a podcast that is tangentially about politics, but how did your parents meet and how do you think that their relationship in some ways informed how you think about race? Yeah, I mean that's a I think that is a political question actually and it's it's um it's a deep one. They met working on war on poverty programs in the late 60s in San Diego, California, where my father was um directing one of these one of these initiatives. Um it was the time of the Great Society and all that. And my mother was nine years younger and and was working for him and they, you know, they became interested in each other but um, my mother's from San Diego, and it was pretty clear to my father that he didn't want to pursue a relationship in her father's backyard um, where her, she was going to have all types of pressure from her church and her community. And so he transferred at some point to Los Angeles, and she went with him. And they were able to live um, much freer in Los Angeles than he felt he had ever been able to live in Texas, where he came from. And they gradually moved east by the time that I was born in 1981. Um, it's exactly like you say. I mean, it was really rare to be a mixed-race family. I have an older brother, five years older. And when the four of us would go to like Red Lobster on a Friday night to have dinner, the entire dining room could stare at us. And that's something that I don't remember exactly when, but in the 90s, the late 90s, early 2000s, I just remember understanding that those stares never happened anymore. Something had changed. It wasn't so freakish to be the family that we were, but but in my childhood, it really was something. Yeah, um, my parents got married in 1979. They met working together at, I believe, what would now be kind of a social justice nonprofit. That's not what they would have been called in the early 1970s. Uh, my mom is six to seven years older than my dad, And I believe in her telling of this story, my mom thought my dad was hot. So um, 
my mom is from West Virginia. Um, she was born and raised there before she moved to Cincinnati and moved, lived around, went to Carleton College in Minnesota. My dad uh, grew up in Cincinnati. He was going to be a priest, which clearly didn't quite work out that way. But he so he went to the seminary for high school before he went to Northwestern. And then he moved back to Cincinnati and eventually became a librarian. And it's interesting because they got married. And my grandmother on the black side of my family, she told me um, before she passed away, like in as delicate terms as my grandmother had, a woman who was born in the 1920s in rural Georgia, but was still one of the kind of person who I believe that she stayed alive for a very long time because she had to know what was going on in everyone else's lives and then <laughs> offer advice on it. She told me like, well, you know, your dad always did like white people. So we kind of expected it. And then on my mom's side, there was some family who I never wound up meeting until much later uh, when I was a little kid myself, uh, who were very distrustful of this relationship until and so often happens to in mixed race families in which the relationship is verboten until you have children and then you meet the kids and you're like, well, I guess this is okay. But um, yeah, that's true. I've thought a lot about how my parents' understanding of race and how even my understanding of race and then racism sprung forth from that because my sister is uh, six years older than I am. You know, she was the only other biracial person I knew. And so the only biracial people who I was aware of were either people I was related to or people I remember um, see, seeing an episode of Sesame Street. And if <laughs> I saw someone on Sesame Street who was like vaguely light skinned, I would get very excited about it. But I would ask my mom questions like we learned in, for instance, in science class about um, how animals of different colors come together. And so, you know, if you have a brown cow and a white cow, you have a cow with spots. And I remember coming home very seriously and asking my mom why I didn't have spots. <laughs> and that was where we were. And I really think that from my mom's perspective, I think in some senses, she viewed her relationship as being both beyond race, but also as an example of how race could be a characteristic not a boundary. Um, so it was, it was really hard, actually, because her idea for my sister and I, um, and keep in mind that I was born in 1987, so I'm growing up in the early 90s, mid-90s, was that we would have big, bold, beautiful afros, and we would never get our hair chemically straightened because she thought that the best thing for us would be to look like Angela Davis. And um, that didn't go over very well in, like, 1993 Cincinnati, which is where I grew up. I thought about this with my dad in a lot of ways because he experienced and continues to experience more direct expressions of racism. And I found myself in some ways trying to move past those moments by thinking about him as being himself beyond race. Um, so, for instance, I remember the first time my dad came home and talked about how um, Someone he worked as a film librarian researcher at the public library in downtown Cincinnati. And someone told him, like, go get that for me, boy. And wow. I remember being shocked at this. And my first thought was like, but my dad, he likes the Tour de France. He's, <laughs> you know, he's not like that. And then I realized I think that that was a sense for me in which race had been put upon us, race had been put upon me, or not even necessarily race as a biological construct, but racism, ra how people mm -hmm. react to me. When were the first times that you started thinking of yourself or th realizing that you were yourself or your father or thinking of yourself in terms of your race? Well, so I grew up in a household where my father is a sociologist by training, and he's uh, a Black man from the segregated South, born in 1937. So I we were talking about racial identity from as early as I can remember. My mother was fully on board with his idea that, you know, a drop of black blood makes you black, not because he believed that race was biologically real, but because he believed that um, in this society, there's no such thing as being half white. My dad was very resolute that we would experience racism. We would be seen as black and we would need to understand what that meant in our society. And so he was telling us that from as soon as we could understand spoken language. 
So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've never seen my father um, experience racism in quite the way that you described that kind of horrific racism. But I was quite aware that I was black, that we lived on the white side of town as a kind of rejection of the real estate practices that um, filtered black people into these small black pockets with with cheaper houses. We We stretched ourselves to live on the white side of town. Um, and we were one of two black families. Um, and I was very aware of that difference, but I was also aware that, you know, white kids didn't think that I was white and, and black kids accepted me as one of the many light skinned people that comes in the orbit of blackness. And so it wasn't really that complicated of a, of a question for me. I kind of understood that I had a white mom, but I was a black, uh, a black man of mixed race ancestry. And that question kind of, never um, became more complicated for me until I was almost 30. I mean, even in, in, in college at Georgetown, that was the first time I had ever met somebody who openly identified as mixed race or biracial. I never met somebody like that, to my knowledge, in my own town, even though I met plenty of people who had light eyes or light skin or different types of hair textures, they would still call themselves black. You mentioned that your father made it clear that you would be understood as being Black. What did you take that or what did he take that to mean? For me personally growing up, the biggest points of contention, and perhaps this is because I grew up as a young girl, was my hair. And that my hair would always be the subject of great contention. And that was the most noticeable thing about me. Um that I did not have long, straight hair that went down. My hair goes straight up as it is currently doing as we speak, <laughs> going straight up in the air. Yeah, with, like mine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with no control over it. I've it's it's a protect. It's like a pr American protectorate. I really it it can vote sort of. It's complicated. Um, but I think that for me, I think that my parents' understanding of race and my parents' understanding of how I would be interpreted was, I think, in some ways, utopic. I think they thought that. My sister and I, in some ways, symbolized a moment at which we would be the dream, in which it wasn't necessarily that our race would not exist, but our race, our races would coexist, and our races would coexist in such a way that we would be interpreted as both white and black, and thus be, in some ways, interpreted as neither. Your dad thought that, too? My dad generally thought that I love this woman, and we have beautiful children, and we have beautiful, smart children, and that's all I really need to know. Mm -hmm. um, I think that much of this came from my mom, of my mom thinking that this was going to represent something new and good, that this would be the formation of something better, a better future in some means. And it's interesting because I think that the what my mom got, and I'm, I'm not sure if your mom also did this, is that a lot of people, when they saw us together, would presume that we weren't related. Yeah. So people asked us all the time, you know, like, oh, where did you get her? <laughs> and uh, then my mom would give an extremely specific answer, and no one asked that question anymore. <laughs> But from your perspective, what did your father think when you, um, like, what did he think that your blackness would mean to you or mean, more importantly, to how people saw you? Yeah, he was not a utopian on questions of race. He's, he's still, he's, he's, he's 83 years old. He's still, I, I would say he's probably more optimistic than he ever had been in my childhood, although he's not, I wouldn't call him completely optimistic. Um, but he, his his sense was that police would, would, would would racialize us, and so we always had to understand we could never move through the uh, the world the way that some of our white neighbors and classmates might feel comfortable doing. We would have to be very very careful around police officers. That was he that I would say that that was one of the primary things he thought about well until after we were out of the house. And you know, I write in my first book, losing my cool, about my brother having. Um, been beaten up by some cops in my dad's house, actually in the garage. And that was kind of like the fruition of something he always felt would happen to us. Uh, luckily, uh, my brother got some teeth knocked out and a weapon was pulled, but it wasn't discharged. And so he left with, you know, a bloody mouth and, uh, and two missing front teeth. But he was in his 20s at that point, um, coming home to my parents' house. And that was basically something my dad expected would happen uh, at some point with encounters with the police or worse. And then he thought that in school, we would have to, he just 
you know, there was none of this kind of conversation that I only became aware of about 10 years ago when Ta-Nehisi Coates started writing about it. There was no self-consciousness about telling us that we had to be twice as good. It was not something that he questioned whether that was right or wrong. It was just, when you go to school, you're going to have to outperform these white kids. And that's just it. And, you know, I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking this unfair or this is respectability politics or anything like that. My dad said, you're going to go to college, you're going to do well, and you're going to have to, for teachers to accept that you're doing well, you're going to probably have to um, demonstrate excellence beyond what some of your friends and classmates do. So those were the two realms uh, in which race was kind of something that he emphasized to us would differentiate us from, from our social environment. When you think back, and I know this is a really challenging question, one that I think about a lot myself, because I think that in some ways, my parents' understanding of race prepared me in some respects for how I think about it now, how I think about my own racial identity. Because I don't know if you've experienced this, but being mixed race in the midst of this conversation is sort of like, what are those like, well, um, so... Uh, because I think that and there's been a lot of really interesting writing, which I'll drop in the show notes, about how mixed race people, specifically half black, half white Americans, play into conversations about race where we are either racialized or deracialized, how Barack Obama becomes a black man or B becomes less black because he has a white parent when nothing changed except terminology and how we think about him. But I've been thinking a lot about where I stand in how we think about and talk about race. And I think that for my parents, I really think that what they did best was that my parents loved us very much. And that despite the fact that I did not become a Latin professor at Oberlin, which was my mother's greatest wish for me, I did write a military history thesis in college. So my dad was good to go on that. But in... That understanding, I th- I wish that there had been a means by which I could have known other mixed race families or other biracial children who were not <laughs> genetically related to me, because I think that in some respects, I felt very much that I needed to or was not doing a good enough job of performing my race. And mm-hmm. by by that, I mean... Well, it's, I mean, it's actually nonsensical. No one, you can't really be anything other than what you are, but there is an understanding that you need to perform an aspect of a culture. Oh, very much so. And I think that in some ways that is placed upon people. And I think that in some ways, even the rejection of that is placed upon people. I think that in some ways people respond to that by saying, you know, I am moving past this or, you know, we, there's been a lot of conversation, um, especially in conservative circles, about concerns about um, kids being told that they're not acting black or, um, or that they're acting white. And so I think that in some respects, I, I did see a little bit of that. But then in other ways, I felt very much the opposite. I felt as if, my identity for some white people was that I seemed more approachable or I seemed less foreign or I seemed more understandable because I was closer to them in some ways. And there's a interesting New York Times piece that I'll drop in the show notes that talks about this a little bit. But and I think that my parents did the absolute best job that they could. I mean, given that they were raising us in the early 1990s, mid 1990s, and not doing so now, when I think that mixed race identity is far more common, as you discussed, and as I've noticed, and far less, quote unquote, controversial. But I'm interested to think about, are there any things that could have been done or that you wish had been done that would have made navigating the world of race uh, easier for you growing up? You know, you said something that I think is absolutely true. And she's not mixed race with two different raced parents. They were both technically black, but she's so light and her parents were so light that she can pass for white. Uh, but this is something that Adrian Piper, the great conceptual artist and philosopher, uh, emphasizes that when you're actually loved by your parents and you know it, and that happens early in life. There's there 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 is some protection from whatever the outside world throws your way. So I had that kind of support and love. Um, we mattered in my house, my brother and I, to my parents. And so things that seem 
racist from the white world or things that seemed really unfair from the black world because they both can misperceive you or project or treat you differently because you seem to be between. Those things kind of slid off me because I felt so supported. So I, I think that that's like, you can't be other than what you are, as you had said. Uh, that's really part of it, the individual psychology and the family culture that you're raised with. But if I were being honest, what I really do wish in retrospect, I grew up understanding, though maybe it was per, maybe it was impossible in my generation. Sometimes I think that I'm and you are the last generation of people that just um, kind of take for granted without questioning that um, a drop of black blood can make somebody black or that, um, that, 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 that you have to choose a side, you're one or the other. Um, I think that now there's a lot less sense that there's not a kind, that, 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 that all identities are kind of, you know, constructed and that and and that, and there's much more awareness in the mainstream conversation that um the idea of racial purity itself is a construct and is and is um not actually true the way that when I was growing up people at least in the New Jersey um suburbs that where I was growing up people believed that race was real and and these categories meant something and that um you could be more or less pure in these categories but I think that maybe there's a difference in gender too I I I have two children I have a seven an almost 7-year-old daughter and I have a just turned two-year-old son. And I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which um, race is gendered and gender is raced. And they are both very white presenting, which is something that I've written about since, since around the time that my daughter um, was born. I've, I've thought through a lot of the ways in which um, her appearing white is very different than my son appearing white, or or it seems that way to me, and it's and it seems that way um, to some of the people that they interact with and meet. And so I think that something that happened to me that may not have happened to you is that um, there's an aspect of black masculinity that was at play, and I had certainly the same experiences you have of probably in retrospect having made white people I was around um, comfortable in certain ways um, because I, I presented as more familiar um, features seemed more familiar or, or mannerisms or things like that. But I also had a lot of pressure um, as an adolescent um, to perform a kind of black masculinity that would win me acceptance or that I believed would win me acceptance. Maybe I overestimated how much I had to perform, but it felt that I had to kind of... Um, that there was an aspect that I that I, I think it could have been a little bit simpler, maybe in some ways, uh, were I not um, were I not a boy. That's an answer to your question that touches on several things. But um, one thing I wish that I knew growing up to really get back to the actual question was just how. Um, how unreal all of this is. I wish that I had read some books like Racecraft in the 90s. I wish I had read Baldwin with an eye to understanding that he was saying that, you know, whiteness and blackness aren't actually real. I think I bought too much into the um, idea that there was some such thing as black authenticity or racial authenticity uh, and that there was an essential difference between my mother and my father and that... Um, I was like, um, because I had my father in me that I was essentially like him and not like my mother. I, I wish I just had a more complicated understanding than the laws of hypodescent allowed me to have. So um, as you've discussed, the idea or the argument that race itself isn't real is not new. Um, if you go back to slave narratives like the escapes of William and Ellen Craft, which we'll drop in the show notes because it's fascinating, because it essentially is uh, two slaves who escaped by posing as a white man traveling with a servant because slavery was not necessarily dependent on appearing to be black. And actually, you can go back and look at um, abolitionist photographs that were passed around of young slave children who to us would be very much white appearing. There were the argument of like, how dare you enslave these essentially young white children with the understanding that that is in some ways worse. And even now, um, I remember, I'm not sure if you do, there was a National Geographic cover that featured mm -hmm. a pair of uh, mixed-race twins, where one twin is much more white-appearing, but they basically are like, white and black, how did it happen? And so how do you think about that now looking back and thinking about this history that you um, are talking about working on 
And how does that change your reflections? Because I know that something that I've come to think about a lot is that while racial categorization is largely nonsensical and lar- and put upon. Um, so for example, when people get into genetic discussions of race, it's worth noting that different groups of people will have, for instance, the same genetic maladies or be have tendencies towards the same genetic maladies. One uh, particular illness that's brought up, um, if you spend time with racial realists, I don't recommend that, um, is sickle cell anemia. But that also is something that occurs among French Canadians. And so, but I'm interested- And Greeks. And yes. And so a lot of the supposed genetic basis for race has motivated reasoning, as you can tell by the people who are very motivated to tell you about it on the internet. But while- race as a categorization may be based on nothing. Racism itself is very much a real thing. And I'm interested in how you think about the relationship between race and racial discrimination, which if or in order to fight racial discrimination would require in some ways recognizing the social constructs of race, even if race isn't real, if that makes sense. Oh, that makes total sense. That's absolutely correct. I mean, that's Absolutely what I argue. I mean, I think that you have to do two things at the same time. You have to um, recognize the way that we're all racialized in this society, not just the way that I kind of grew up, um, you know, it was kind of white people were this neutral kind of starting point and anybody uh, who was not exactly white was like to some degree a deviation from that neutrality. But white people are raced in this society as well. And I think that we all have to understand the way that race is constructed uh, and we have to understand the way that racism works through that. You have to oppose the racism as it exists in the real world. But the question that we always have to keep in mind is what kind of society are we actually trying to achieve and get to, even if it's very difficult and it takes a long time to get there. I think you can't ultimately defeat racism so long as you adhere to and reify the categories that it imposes. Uh, you know, I really am um, uh, persuaded by Barbara and Karen Fields' book, Racecraft, that racism creates race and not the other way around. These are abstract color categories that come out of the collision of Europe and Africa through the slave trade in the New World, and they imply a certain hierarchy that can't be solved by simply saying that we need to make um, black people be as um, respected uh, in society as white people, but, that, but, but with the tacit understanding that these are different peoples. I think we really do have to get to that point where we have a kind of transcendent humanism, however um, naive that might sound or however far away that might be. So I I reject the category, but I do not ever intend to say that I downplay the way in which our societies are heavily racialized and, and and are fundamentally permeated by racism. And to your point about the way that, you know, these, these slaves could look white, I mean, absolutely. My dad is from Galveston, Texas, and I was, you know, um, wondering what he would think when my daughter was born. You know, she was, she had light blue eyes and blonde hair already. And, 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 and her skin is lighter than mine, lighter than her mother's at the time. And, you know, my dad came to Paris and, and, and he was holding her and I said, you know, what do you think? She doesn't look so black, does she? And he said, oh, you know, son, he said, head, you know, I had classmates in the South who didn't look so different from this. He's like, this has always been, this has always been there. And they were on the black side of town with me, you know, and, and, and that just, we laughed and that put me at ease. And this has always been there. These are arbitrary categories that are about social control. They're, they were about who inherits property. The average African-American, average black American, like my father, who's right on average, uh, probably like your father is, 80% West African descended and, and usually around 20 or more percent uh, Northern European descended. I mean, we're all mixed. That's the fundamental truth about American society that Ralph Ellison and, and, and many of our, our, our best writers and thinkers have always pointed out. We're a mongrel nation. There are millions of white people walking around with enough West African DNA in their bodies to have rendered them legally uh, enslavable in many of the southern states where the laws of hypodescent obtained. So I, I think we need a much more sophisticated way of talking about ourselves, but we also need to be trying to head to a simpler way of talking about ourselves. So let's take a quick break, and then I want to get into that and talk about how we would do that in our current context. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So with the understanding that your, as you said, a goal of finding a better way to talk about ourselves, one that in some senses, I think you've used the term unlearning race before. In the United States, we have a binary of sorts. We have a political party that acknowledges systemic racism exists and acknowledges the role that race plays in our politics and our culture. And then we have another one that says that that's not a thing at all and doesn't exist. In our current dynamic, how do you imagine a system of unlearning race and how that fits in if in order to do so in some senses would be one that would not just lift away the categorizations of race, but also the categorizations of racism? Yeah, well, you know, there's 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 multiple things that have to happen. Um, one thing is, I think that in our mainstream discourse, we have to try to do what we're doing the opposite of right now, which is to try to not reify all of the kind of racecraft that pops up in all of our daily lives, all of our habits of speech, all of our habits of seeing. Um, if, as Adrian Piper argues, racism is a perceptive error which I really believe it is. You don't see the person in front of you. You see a myth, you see a, a history, you see uh, what Paul Gilroy calls um, uh, residue of conflicts and prejudices past. We actually have to work on the individual psychological level of trying to see people and interact with people as individuals and not as avatars of, of groups. Um, but all of that is just kind of abstract and, and, and maybe a little highfalutin. I'm convinced more now than even when I wrote the book uh, several years ago, um, I'm convinced that some aspect of, uh, of reparation would go a long way and probably is necessary to unlearning race. Because um, in America, we talked before about race being gendered, but race is classed. Right. And class is race. And so I don't see a way to unlearn race so long as people keep, even as individuals, keep all too often interacting with each other on unequal terms. I think in my own life, I've had a lot of luck and I've, you know, had some personal motivations that have led me to live in a lot of different places and travel widely. And one thing that seems true to me is that people do best with meeting each other without this residue of prejudice when they can meet each other on equal terms and come come into contact with each other, not in hierarchical fashions. So it's a lot easier to, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's not just easier probably to feel comfortable if you're a white person that hasn't been around a lot of black people um, with someone who is mixed or less uh, black presenting. I think it's a lot 
probably easier for you to get over whatever racial bias you might have if that person comes at you at your class level. So, so you know, I thought that the most persuasive text I've read in years was Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Case for Reparations. I, I 100% believe, I don't know what that would look like necessarily, but I, but I believe that you can't get to this kind of racial promised land, for lack of a better term, without um, addressing the class stuff. So um, thinking about race and thinking about um, eliminating racial discrimination, that one of the efforts to do so in the United States has been through affirmative action, which I have an extraordinarily complicated relationship with, because um, as you may have experienced, and as perhaps any non-white, specifically Black person listening has, is if you do anything of any consequence in any environment, many people accuse you of being the an example of affirmative action. And that's actually why, as a side note, um, there's a lot of talk among conservatives about mismatch theory, that if you allow um, African-American students into high-level universities that they are, quote-unquote, mismatched to, that they might not be able to prepare and they be prepared for it and they might fail, as if failure is in some ways indicative of a cross-racial issue and not something that happens to people sometimes. Anywho, but I'm interested in how you think about affirmative action or those kinds of policies that are heavily reliant on thinking about people based on their race, thinking about people absent of their class. But when, uh, for instance, affirmative action ended in California, we saw that Black and Hispanic enrollment uh, declined across the University of California system, but also it didn't benefit other racial groups, uh, necessarily whites and Asian Americans. So from a policy perspective, do you have any thoughts on how policies such as affirmative action that are so obviously race-based, do you view them as kind of like the worst, best solution? Or how do you think about these policy efforts? Yeah, I mean, I have had an evolving opinion of affirmative action as well. Um, And I'm conflicted on it too, because like you know, many liberals and, and like many, uh, many, many, many people coming up, uh, when I did who were black or who were not white, it felt like something necessary and something that I, uh, supported without thinking very hard about it. It's in more recent years, um, hearing people like Glenn Lowry talk about it that I've questioned some of my assumptions and even being influenced by some of the arguments that um, Antonio Moore and people uh, affiliated with Eidos make, you know, there, there, there's so much involved with affirmative action that does not do anything to make the lives of actual um, poor and, and arguably legitimately oppressed black people better. I don't know what it means to say that black people in this country have been enslaved and then suffered through, you know, decades of Jim Crow and were redlined out of wealth. Um, but we're going to accept this Nigerian daughter of professionals to Harvard and that'll check the black box. I mean, that really bothers me if I stop to think about it. And then Glenn Lowry's point about, you know, affirmative action. Many of the people that are, that are, that are doing well now have probably benefited from it, you know, uh, almost certainly. He himself says he benefited from it. But so long as that uh, doesn't have a, a limit on it, that cannot go on in perpetuity. And you get the impression that uh, it's supposed to be something that's considered somewhat untouchable. But if it, by necessity, if it goes on in perpetuity, then you're you're simply conceding that, that that black people can never be expected to compete. They just cannot be cons- expected to get into elite institutions um, if they have to be held to standards that Asians and whites and, and some others are expected to be able to to meet. And that doesn't sit well with me. I can't accept a world where 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 part of my identity means that it's tacitly understood that I can't. Um, do things that people who belong to other identity groups do. And so I'm, I, I've, I've cooled on, I've moved away from the idea that affirmative action is necessarily good, or at least the way that it's done now when it's based on abstract color categories. So I don't know what that means. I don't know when it should end. It should do something to help minorities who are actually struggling and not simply be a kind of access to the Ivy League for, for the sons and daughters of professionals. 
I, I've been thinking about this a lot because I actually uh, did a podcast on the issue of critical race theory and how among uh, people, the accolades or people who practice critical race theory, there's kind of the two sides to it. So there are what I would call cultural critical race theorists and material critical race theorists. And material critical race theorists argue that racism is normal, not normal as in good, normal as in common, and that racism works either um, psychically for poorer white Americans or materially for wealthier people. But what we see so often in our culture, and you've noted um, you know, how Ivy League institutions might use affirmative action or how we hear about uh, diversity initiatives at big corporations, is that it is far easier to do that than it is to reallocate wealth, than it is to rethink how these institutions work on the and think about on the basis of race. Because I think that in some respects, I, I disagree with you about the nature of affirmative action, because I think affirmative action is based on the un- on an understanding, not necessarily that African Americans cannot do things, as you and I, um, I, I will use this particular moment to talk up my academic team uh, talents from high school and uh, my performance on the SAT2s, but that African Americans in the United States tend to lack access to many of the same material goods that many other people have. And so I think that, you know, when, especially if we're still in a university system that enjoys the legacy system, which I find to be way more problematic, I think that what we see here, though, is an understanding that what Harvard might be doing or what high level institutions are doing is saying that rather than rethink our multi billion dollar endowments, rather than rethink how we think about wealth in this country and the relationship between wealth and class and race. I always like reminding people that the time of the the smallest wealth gap in the United States was uh, visible in the early 1950s, which was not a tip-top time for African Americans. But I think of it in some ways as the material critical race theorist might, is that it, people chose to focus on quote-unquote diversity initiatives rather than think about union membership, rather than think about redistribution writ large. Oh, that's absolutely, that's, I mean, that's got to be correct. You have to wonder um, how radical anything can be that's embraced by all of the Fortune 200 companies, um, as we see, you know, with like, white fragility or something like that, you know, the diversifying elites, getting more black and brown faces amongst the billionaire class or the nine-figure class. I mean, that that is very different than the kind of challenge that even Bernie Sanders was, was the kind of radicalism that he was trying to bring forth. I think you have to be very uh, suspicious of anything that can be so readily and easily embraced by all of our elite institutions and corporations. Absolutely. So I'm interested because so much of our conversation, and I I um, am a massive fan of the Weeds audience, and I very much value their contributions, but I think that one of the challenges you and I both have, and that many people who are African-American or mixed race having these conversations, is that we are having these conversations in public while being largely viewed by white people. And I think about this a lot in terms of how I have these conversations, which I recognize are incredibly complex and complicated, and how I am myself posited. I think that one of the things about social media is that it's an inherently flattening mechanism. And so you become a player on a chessboard in a game that you did not elect to play, (laughs) um, in which you play a character and you are part of a team, even if that is not necessarily what you signed up for. Do you think in some ways, and I I think about this myself, that whether or not I uh, signed up for it or whether or not I think of myself as this, I am in some ways professionally black. I am a professionally black person who writes about conservatism and writes about white nationalism. They don't respond to my emails. You might be shocked to learn. (laughs) But do you think in some ways that your work and your writing and how your writing is viewed is based in any part or in some part on an audience's perception of you as a black person who is different from other black people. And I I want to qualify that, that whether or not that is 
true or not, which I don't believe it to be so. I know that for me, I have often, um, and I'm sure you've gotten this sometimes, of being told that you're not like other Black people or that you are in some ways doing something that is very different from what other Black people on the internet or other Black elites are doing because in some ways uh, there are allowed to be, what, five well-known Black writers at any one time and we all must fight to the death. I mean, that's absolutely correct what you say. I mean, that's a really good way of putting it is whether you want to be or not, you have been put on a chessboard and you're making moves that Twitter wants you to make. Uh, and, and and I'm always shocked by this, but you're put on teams, whether you see yourself on that team or even accept to be on that team or not. I constantly learn that I'm in the IDW in certain people's um, understanding of what that term means. I don't even understand what the term really is supposed to mean, and I don't understand what the parameters for it are, but I've never been in it, never um, looked at that terminology and thought that explains my views. Um, some of the views I do hold overlap with some people that call themselves IDW, but it's a very strange just, thing just to Just to uh, briefly explain, um, the IDW is the intellectual dark web, which is a philosophical neologism coined by Eric Weinstein, and very much of it uh, seems to be there are many people who are who think of themselves as being part of it. There are more people who have been termed to be part of it. Much of it, in my view, seems to be talking about how you talk about things that no one is allowed to talk about, but you mostly focus on how no one is letting you do so. Well, you do so. Um, but anyway, please continue. <laughs> well, that's another thing. You can talk about... Uh, you know, restrictions on debate without necessarily saying that you don't have any platforms or means of expression. But 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 you're right that, you know, there's this kind of conception of what the IDW is. Uh, and that's an example of something I get grouped in as a kind of team. But I don't think of myself as playing on teams. But you're absolutely right that um, there are people that, you know, look to you as being professionally black uh, when you think that you're just trying to talk about a subject that's relevant and interesting to you. And, you know, like any writer, why do you write? Why do you make an intervention in a public discourse? Why do you, why do you not just be silent or do something else? It's because you think that something is not exactly correct or you see it differently or you, you think that it's not quite this way, it's that way. And so, you know, I'm interested in the subject of race. I, I, I have experiences that inform my interest, um, but I also have a lot of other interests. And, and, and I think one thing that I've done to kind of try to diversify is I, I don't even, I, I live in more than one culture. I live in more than one um Nation, and I and, and and I and I try to write about things that don't have anything to do with race. But I I would be it would be disingenuous of me to say that I my ideal would be to get beyond talking about race. I really do believe that many of the most important things that we can try to think through um, about our society um, can be can be accessed through the questions that uh, race poses. So I know that some people look to me as being somebody who says certain things that they would like to say, but because of their identity, they don't feel comfortable saying it. Or I might give people cover to um, draw conclusions that I don't intend them to draw, but they take those conclusions from other things that I've said. I think you understand what I mean. You know, I, I sometimes the most um, upsetting uh, response you can have to an argument is um, agreement that warps or, or, or takes in a direction that... Uh, is contrary to your ethics, an argument that you that you did put out there that can be much worse than than than, than vehement disagreement um, that at least understands what you're trying to say but but doesn't accept the premise if that makes sense. So, so, but it's complicated. I think that the alternative of uh, of staying quiet or not allowing myself to be um, professionally black and misused in in, in public spaces the, the alternative is even worse. Is that is that you just don't try to do your part to direct the conversation in, in a way that you think is more useful. Let's take another break and then we'll, we'll come back to this. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard, but with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. 
Eric Maxwell from the business side of things here at Vox got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. You've written extensively on your understandings of Blackness, um, specifically um, when talking about your experiences at Georgetown or talking about your experiences with Black culture, which I think is a challenging term for me because whenever I, I am on the internet, as I am often, I often, I hate the term Black community because it implies that we have meetings. Um, <laughs> whereas, you know, white people are allowed to be parts of extremely large disparate groups and at no point is there expected to be a white community Zoom meeting where they talk about white leaders or, I don't know, have ham sandwiches or something. But... I am interested in your understanding of what is black culture? What does that mean? Is that, and why do you think that black culture or your understanding of black culture, why was that something that for you was so important to talk about as something that you were a part of, but wanted to in some ways move beyond if I'm getting that correct? Well, yeah, I would, I would not exactly correct because I consider myself very much a product of and a participant in Black culture, you know, that's not something that I'm trying to unlearn. But I think that I grew up um, with a very restricted notion of what constituted Black culture or where the boundaries were. And the first book I wrote was about how my friends and I and a lot of the people that I looked up to in my neighborhood and on BET, Black Entertainment Television and MTV, a lot of those people seem to draw the boundaries for authentic black culture within the boundaries of not just hip hop culture, but a specific kind of mainstream street inflected hip hop culture. So black, black culture was for me, um, as an adolescent, very mixed up with ideas of street authenticity, street credibility, um, and, and the performance of such. My father, who is outside of that, just seemed to me, you know, um, somewhat eccentric and, and, and very much uh, an individual. It was when I got into my 20s and, you know, was reading widely and was, was listening to jazz and to a lot of different genres of black music that I started to have. And, you know, I, I, there's lots of, many, many, many black people come to these conclusions before I did. I'm not saying that this is something that I um, didn't do very late. But I, I, I started to have an understanding of Black culture as being far more expansive and capacious and, 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 and able to uh, fully embrace many different walks of life and interests than I had growing up. And, you know, I came to the conclusion that uh, Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray and Stanley Crouch, the late great Stanley Crouch, who recently passed, um, would have argued, which is that black culture is fundamentally American culture and that there's not even um, a delineation where you can find um, where white and other parts of American culture haven't been thoroughly infused with, with the black American experience. Like you mentioned earlier, you know this when you go back to Africa and you know that something happened during those 400 years and, and, and a people was created in the new world and that people is, is, is a mongrel people. But, I, but I'm getting outside of the, the purview of the, the question, which was just that I came to an understanding of, uh, of, of needing to free myself from certain tropes that I think were really marketed and sold to, to, to my generation. But do you think that in some ways it's that marketing and the selling? Because I, I think a lot about... Um the history of rap music and the history of the messaging of rap music. And I actually would draw some comparisons in some ways to my other love, which is metal and industrial. And so metal and industrial, you have a series of congressional hearings that force poor damn Frank Zappa to come out and explain lyrics to songs or something like that. But so much of the part of why in some ways metal music in the early to mid 1990s and you see it in the late 1990s where Marilyn Manson is in some ways blamed for the Columbine shootings the shooters mm -hmm. at Columbine were not fans of Marilyn Manson they liked KMFDM 
but in some ways that marketing effort, which was taken largely and entirely separately from the musicians themselves, in which hip hop that is, or music of any type that is more likely to appeal to, say, purient interests is marketed extremely heavily purely on the basis of being controversial, purely on the basis of being what your parents don't want you to be listening to. Um, The Beastie Boys have talked about this a little bit, about how they recognize now looking back and thinking about what they, how they were marketed in the late 19, 1980s and early 1990s. Do you think in some ways that plays in as well? Because it's not necessarily street authenticity. It is the authenticity of what the what a marketing group or what a boardroom perceives quote unquote the streets to be where you have you know you see notorious big talking about in some songs that don't gain widespread appeal talking about how like there's violence in the streets and i don't like this and my mother has breast cancer and things have changed in my community and i don't like it and you Mm -hmm. don't get that you get juicy which i also enjoy But do you think that in some ways it's the marketing of that culture that became the problem, not necessarily the culture itself? A couple things. Yes, I. the marketing is disastrous. And that is something that's not um, singular to hip hop. And of course, the metal stuff, Marilyn Manson and all that. And, you know, there were, you know, similar criticisms were made against jazz and all types of stuff. What I think is really unique about the kind of, hip-hop culture that I was certainly growing up around um, was the degree to which it was very much, it functioned like a secular religion. And, and, and so it wasn't really just about music. It was an entire way of moving through the world, envisioning yourself, envisioning your place in the world. It was the way that you slapped hands. It was the way you dressed. It was what you thought was for you, by you, and what you thought was, was, was not for you and was outside of your kind of purview. The music was just the soundtrack to a kind of idea and value system, one in which, you know, ideas of misogyny were very, very, very uh, left unquestioned. Uh, Violence, you know, um, obviously is cliche. But also, you know, I've written a lot about um, the degree to which hip hop uh, in many ways was extraordinarily conservative and, you know, extremely capitalistic and, and, and you know, and, and kind of winner take all and, 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 you know, not a kind of, uh, it wasn't very Bernie Sanders in my day. It was, you know, it was very much uh, Jay-Z. We were all, you know, very much trying to do the same thing that the kids I went to college with who wanted to become bankers wanted to do, which was just make a buck at any cost, you know, without thinking much about it. Right. And that is in some ways, like, it, you know, the the amorality of either of those things is posited very differently depending on who you are. Absolutely. Uh, no, but see, the thing is, so here's the thing. Those white kids that liked hip hop or wanted to be bankers, it's posited very differently depending on who you are. The The thing that troubled me was the degree to which many of us were being hoodwinked. We weren't going to become Jay-Z and we weren't going to become super successful through this, but we were thinking of ourselves as being, that we were thinking that this was the, the sum total of what we could uh, be and reflect back in the world. It was, it was a very narrowing and limiting idea of, of what realizing the totality of your individual self would mean. It was certainly not something that, um, you know, had to happen if you like to listen to most deaf or something like that. But there was kind of, there was, there, there was a way in which seeing yourself as, as black and seeing the, the kind of what Orlando Patterson or sociologists like that would call the cool post culture and the rewards that you get from fulfilling these, inhabiting these stereotypes that affected us very differently than, than, than even my, you know, kind of, you know, rapacious and, and greedy, capitalistic white friends uh, who were trying to be bankers, they, they, their, their sense of self wasn't wrapped up in it in quite the same way and, and then reverberating through their communities. I, I, I think there's something very particular about the way that cool post-culture operates in, 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 the, in the sense of reality that um, young black men of my generation in the late 90s, early 2000s were operating through. That idea to me is something... I don't know. I think that my understanding of what musical culture meant to what I myself would do was always kind of foreign to me as being a being wrapped up in 
my own identity. But I think that that is something I understand, but I disagree, but I understand. Um, so, <laughs> That's all you can ask for. So I think that my final question for you would be when you are thinking about your work, what do you see your role as being? Because I think that when you are not the projection of other people's hopes and fears, when you are not tasked with explaining or thinking about being mixed race or being black or thinking about, because um, we, we're going to have an entirely separate conversation elsewhere about uh, speech issues. When you are not doing all of that, what do you want people to know about your work or to think about your work or to think about your work through the lens of? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I don't want to be thought of as somebody who only um, is interested in negating. I'm enthusiastic about a lot of things. I, I would love for people to think of me as somebody who celebrates a certain um, vision of, uh, of, 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 of the individual in American society, uh, of, of the, the extraordinary achievements of um, that, that blacks have made in American society and also of the universal kind of ability for us to understand and appreciate each other. I, I would like people to think of me as somebody who writes about uh, Europe from an American's perspective, uh, who tries to make sense of some of the moral questions and dilemmas of our day and, and, and tries to think through questions on my own and, and, and will be willing to, to circle back and reject views that prove to be false uh, or, or, or that, can be, that I can be persuaded to see as false. Um, I don't want to be thought of as someone dogmatic. Um, and, you know, I, I, and I think the main thing that's always motivated me when I, you know, I've been doing this for about 10 years now, uh, I want to be thought of as someone who cares very much about sentences and, and writing and, 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 and not just somebody who makes arguments, but somebody who thinks about the way in which arguments are delivered. Thank you so much, Thomas, for speaking with me. Thank you to our producer, Jeff Geld. And the weeds will return on Friday. Friday.